Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and I'm joined today by Dirk Eitz, author of Modern Monetary Theory and European Macroeconomics, published in 2017 by Rutledge, and updated in September in German as Money and Credit, a European Perspective, published by Metropolis. In the wake of the COVID pandemic, Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT, has found its moment. A sudden and massive loss of global output was met with an unprecedented response by governments and central banks. Policymakers appear to have abandoned economic orthodoxy with giant fiscal stimulus measures and an explosion of central bank balance sheets. And against this backdrop, Stephanie Kelton published The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy, which remains in the New York Times hardcover nonfiction bestseller list after six months. One of the criticisms of her book, and of MMT generally, is that its best-known proponents are American, and its examples and policy proposals focus heavily on the US and the dollar. This is where Dirk Heinz and his book come in, the only book so far applying MMT to the Eurozone. Dr. Heinz is a Berlin-based economist. He earned his doctorate at the Karl von Ossietzky University at Oldenburg, and subsequently worked as an academic economist at the Berlin School of Economics and Law, the Free University Berlin, Bard College, the Technical University of Chemnitz, and the University of Flensburg. In politics, he's worked as a researcher for a Green member of the Bundestag, and during last year's elections to the European Parliament, he was the lead author of the Green New Deal for Austria in the Socialist Youth Campaign, and also contributed to the Green New Deal for Europe blueprint. Every summer since 2016, he's hosted a course on MMT at Maastricht University, And in February 2019, he organized the first European MMT conference for the Pufendorf Gesellschaft. The second conference is scheduled for September 2021. Dirk, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tim. Uh, With your summer schools, conferences, and this book, you seem to be a one-man campaign for MMT in the Euro area. Why do you think MMT has yet to have the same impact uh, intellectually in Europe as it has in the United States? Well, I, th- I think that um, the, the time is, is ripe for, for MMT. Um, so what we have in terms of a macroeconomic situation in the Eurozone is that we have um, the system where the ECB is basically running the show. So the ECB determines what is fiscal space in that sense. So um, we have seen in the couple, last couple of months that we were able to ha- have an increase in government spending and an increase in deficits in the eurozone that we we would have thought uh, impossible before so i think that the italian deficit is up to more than 10 percent of gdp the same in spain um, countries increase their government spending without government bond yields going up so we we have a wholly new situation and that cannot be explained with the mainstream theory so there is really a fork in the road where we have to decide whether we want to stick with the old theory that cannot explain what has been going on and probably is not very helpful to to well move us further into the future or we we basically pick mmt and say okay let's let's have a look at what's going on in terms of balance sheets um and that's something that that can explain why we have now higher public debt without having higher interest rates for example or higher rates of inflation so I think that we really have reached the moment where, where MMT has to be the theory that is used for, for policymaking. Hmm. 
Well, as you do in your book, uh, we'll come to the euro and and, and reform proposals uh, last. But the book is broken down into four sections. The the first two cover the theoretical foundations of the purposes of economic activity, the nature of money and credit. And the final two are an analysis of the European monetary system pre and post-1999. And the, the core of your case in the first 150 pages of the book, um, I could probably summarize by, by the following quotes. Uh, money is not actually a limited resource. Money is a scorekeeping tool, nothing more. Unless debts are denominated in a foreign currency, a government and banking system it ultimately controls cannot run out of money. And the government does not need tax revenues to finance its spending since government is able to create money. Taxes merely help government to spend without causing inflation. Anyway, I'm I'm cherry picking, but Mm -hmm. can you set out the theoretical argument in the first half of the book in, in broad terms? Yeah, well, in broad terms, what I basically try to explain is that just in the, like in the case of the United States, the, the Eurozone has a central bank, and that central bank can create money. And that money is basically like a balance sheet, um, but the balance sheet is already an abstraction. So what they actually have is an accounting system, more like a spreadsheet. Um, and in that accounting system, you have um, accounts from banks and from government and public institutions like lower levels of government or also public banks or public public companies, public utilities. And the, the central bank is the, the great manipulator, uh, not in a bad sense, in a good sense. So the, the central bank can create money under the rules that are given by, by law. For example, the ECB can, can give, uh, well, they can mark up the, the balances that banks have at the ECB if the banks are lending against uh, collateral that they have to put up. So the ECB can define what kind of collateral that that, uh, that has to be, um, and the ECB um, via its national central banks also makes sure that the payments of of governments are executed. Okay, so most people believe that in the eurozone, um, it's the bonds and the taxes that you take in first, and then you you have government spending because it's a euro and it's not MMT somehow. But technically, that's not true. So if the German government spends, for example, um, every time they do that, they ask the Deutsche Bundesbank, the German central bank, to, to execute their payment. And the German central bank is just looking into the account of the German government. If there's enough money, they, they get a green light, which means then that they credit, they mark up the account of the receiving bank. Um, so this means that that's this kind of system in, in the eurozone where, where governments apparently first have to sell government bonds and then they can spend. Um, that is only a political system. So, so funds that are owned by the government and that are basically lying on, on the central bank's account, that is not money, okay? Because this is more like a score point system um, because the, the central bank doesn't owe anything to the German government. Um, so what, what the uh, sales of bonds do in, in the Eurozone and also the, the taxes do that, the tax income of government is it gives the national central bank a green light to execute payments for for the government. But still, uh, also in the Eurozone for all countries, um, every time a national government spends money, it's a central bank marking up the account of the receiving bank, which then marks up the account of the receiving person or firm. And this is how it works in in the Eurozone. So many people got that right and basically think that the euro somehow is a different system from from the US dollar system and from a normal system 
Uh, I don't think so. It's it's not a it's not a different system. It, it works the same, just that you need a green light from your national central bank before you spend, um, which is also very similar to the U.S. Uh, Stephanie Kelton's book, uh, which you mentioned, um, contains I think three or four uh, uh, policy breaks that you have in the United States. Um, so there's also there uh, there's political uh, um, political roadblocks. Uh, if so, if you want to increase government spending, you might hit the debt ceiling and these kind of things. Um, mm. So this is very very close to what we have in the eurozone. So that, in a nutshell, is is the fiscal component, which I think is the more interesting part of the book. We already know how how banks create money. Mm. So effectively, um, the roles of the central bank and government are reversed compared to what would be considered orthodox theory. Is that right? Yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe depends on what orthodox theory really believes. Um, um, I, I think if you're completely neoclassical, you would, yeah, you would be confused because you would assume that somehow the government would have to borrow, borrow, borrow money from from the capital markets, um, and then you would basically say that only in times of emergency you would have the government, uh, sorry, the central bank, pay the government's bills because this kind of monetary financing would normally lead to hyperinflation. So just like in the case of the United States, what we are saying, or what I'm saying in my book, but what we are saying here in Europe as the MMT uh, group, uh, is that even in, in the Eurozone, government uh, spending is not financed by, by taxation or by bonds. Um, technically, it's always the central bank paying the bills. Um, but then, of course, in Germany, we have some people who are on the orthodox, orthodox side uh, but they know about these technical details. So these people would basically say, yeah, we know that the German central bank is, it, it's calling itself the banker to the German government. Okay, mm -hmm. so they know what, what has been going on the whole time. Also, we had the Deutsche Mark a couple of, of decades ago, and uh, many people still remember that. And they, they know that the German central bank was, was heavily involved in issuing bonds and, and making sure that the government uh, of Western Germany then uh, would be able to to execute all their payments, and is is the underlying argument that um, fiscal policy is is structurally restrictive because it's financed with debt that's repaid at interest? Is is that the fundamental point you're making? Well, if you would, if you want to understand why the eurozone zone is set up like it is, um, you have to go back to the to the nineties, basically. So. We had a very neoliberal world in the 1990s. So, so apparently there was the collapse of, of Soviet communism. Um, and some people took that uh, to mean that basically markets have won. So the market economy should, should basically be, be the winner, which politically means that you, you just basically pass along all the power um, to the markets. So to, to big companies, um, you, you basically are okay with lobbying and all these kind of things. And that also means that you have a hands-off approach in terms of economic policy. So um, when the euro was created, there were plans uh, from the 60s and 70s, and they all included a euro treasury. And the euro treasury was, was something that was supposed to fix this problem of deficient demand. Um, but back in the 90s, in the neoliberal era, um, the central bank was supposed to be neutral uh, and was supposed to have only one goal which is to, to basically fight inflation or to make sure that you have price stability. That's, that's the mandate of, uh, of the ECB. Um, and then, of course, they, they had the question, uh, the fiscal question to deal with. So what do we do 
with government spending. Um, back then, the framing was that there was some kind of economy uh, created by markets, which of course obviously is, is wrong because without uh, without state money and without uh, property laws and all these kind of things and other state institutions, there would be no market. But that was the the ideas of of those uh, of those decades. Um, so basically, they said we have to limit the the size of government spending. How do we do that? And then they came up with this idea of having uh, deficit ratios. So they basically said we put a three percent debt to GDP uh, limit on on the deficits. So if government spending is too high and tax income is too low, and you you basically go above this kind of deficit limit that we set. Then the European Commission will have power to to demand from you uh, a plan how you reduce your government spending or how to increase taxes. Well, practically, it was always about cutting government spending. So that is basically the neoliberal setup. And the idea was also that that markets, bond markets, would be able to determine which kind of government would be able to lend. Um, for low interest rates and which kind of governments would have to lend at high interest rates. So the idea was that markets would uh, increase the price of money for those governments uh, that are not effective or efficient. Um, and they would basically offer low interest rates for those governments that are very efficient or effective. Um, and in that sense, the markets would watch over the governments and make sure that they are more efficient. Um, and that, of course, has, has not worked at all. Um, so in 2010, um, in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, the markets realized in January 2010 that perhaps it is possible that the government of Greece will go bankrupt, will run out of money because it will not be supported by the ECB. And that was very, very late. I remember that I was um, a postdoc at the University of Oldenburg and we've been talking about the crisis, of course, every day. It's an economics department. So what do you talk about? And we always wondered when the markets will finally decide that government bonds from Greece are not a good investment. And it took until January 2010 um, for, for the market to, to understand that, that Greek bond prices are heavily overpriced. Um, and then the whole, the whole problem started to, to happen. That Basically, the ECB under Trichet said, OK, um, we're not, we're not uh, responsible for, for stability of bond prices which of course means that, that if you're not supported by your own, your own central bank, um, there is no, there's no buyer of last resort. So there's some kind of default risk for your, for your government bonds. Um, and, and that was what created the Eurozone crisis because the ECB stepped back and they, they dodged responsibility. Um, and yeah, then, then the Greeks basically had to default. They swapped that, I think, two times, uh, reduced it by, by 50% twice, roughly. Um, and then they, they still have, I don't know, 180% of public debt to GDP ratio today. Um, so, so it really, really didn't work. It created lots of unemployment, lots of social problems, poverty. Um, so the, it was clear to, to most observers that the euro system uh, has, a, has a problem. Yeah, wasn't the prob underlying problem there that the markets misread the intentions of the Eurozone authorities? So that the underlying the market mispricing of Greek bonds was the, the, the belief that they wouldn't enforce the no bailout clause. And as you say, it, it, in the end, it did end up with a, with a Greek debt swap, but the markets had for whatever, for, for getting on for 10 years, not believed that. Do, do you think there is a similar mispricing going on now? 
Well, right now the, the ECB has has obviously learned from from past mistakes. Um, so starting with with Draghi and his idea of whatever it takes, the ECB has more or less accepted that it has to be a lender of last resort, like all the other central banks are, which means that they in, in times of crisis they buy they buy all the government bonds that 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 people want to sell, so investors want to sell, and that means you have a stable price. So there's no risk of default. There's no fluctuation of price if if you want to have that. And of course, um, what you don't want to have in reality is, is that interest rates go up in times of crisis. And the ECB with its pandemic emergency purchase program, um, which allows it to, to buy um, government bonds and other financial assets worth more than 1 trillion uh, euros until the end of next year, I think, um, mm. or even March 2023. Um, 22, yeah. 22, yeah. Um, so, so now the ECB can do what it has to do and act as a lender of last resort. And of course, the markets understand this and the spreads. So the differences in, in yields um, be- between the German uh, government bond yield and other uh, Eurozone countries' government bond yields, this, those spreads have been reduced. And those countries which increased government spending in times of crisis like Germany, but also like Spain and Italy, these countries were not punished by the markets because mm. the, the ECB stands uh, now behind the national governments, which means as as a market player you cannot you cannot bet against the central banks. The, the ECB has unlimited firepower. Um, Christine Lagarde said that in an interview uh, or a mm. press conference a couple of weeks ago said we can create unlimited amounts of money, and that means if the ECB is buying government bonds from from banks, either the banks are holding them directly or the banks are holding them for some clients. But that means the ECB can just credit and or mark up the account of the bank that is selling the bond. So there's no, no limit to to that. Um, so if if they um, if they need more more space in the sense of spending more euros, they can just increase the size of the PEP program, the Pandemic mm-hmm. Emergency Purchase Program, and that will be it. Yeah, but but would you? I mean, that's certainly how the ECB is now, uh, right in the middle of the uh, of the pand- pandemic crisis phase. But would you trust? The ECB to have the same attitude, you know, a year, two, three years from now. Is do you think there has been this this change of paradigm? Yeah, that is now the the, the elephant in the room. Mm. <laughs> um, so, so of course, some some of the governments in in Italy and in Spain they don't they don't trust the eurozone institutions and the European institutions, the the EU institutions. They basically believe that maybe afterwards they go back to austerity. And um, I think there, there is the risk of, of this happening. Um, there's also now the money that is connected to next generation European Union or next generation mm-hmm. EU, um, which apparently comes with strings attached. So the government of Spain was already told that they have to reform their pension system if they want to have that money. Um, so, yeah, of course, there's, there's the risk that the, the Eurozone falls back into this mode that they were in in 2010, the neoliberal uh, setup basically uh, for the ECB to pull out and then the the deficit rules will be uh, reestablished. Right now we have the general escape clause of the stability and growth pact being activated also for next year. So so deficits can be as high as these countries want them to be. Um, But of course, maybe in 2022, these deficit rules are back. Um, The interesting thing though, is that, that you have those stability and growth pact rules um, if the crisis is over next year, and in 2022, we, we basically have the same surpluses and deficits as in 2019, if that would be the case, then of mm. course, there would not be any problem. Okay, so Even if you have really big deficits right now, 
let's let's assume we are talking about Italy now. Okay, so assume that Italy has a deficit of maybe fifteen percent this year, maybe ten next, and they they government spend into the economy to fix the employment the unemployment problem. Let's let's just assume that they do. Well, then in twenty twenty two, they return to normal in a, in a way in in a sense that they go back to two thousand and nineteen economic growth levels. That means they will probably not have a deficit because the economy is economy is working well and tax income is is high because things are, are moving well. Well, if if you don't break the deficit rules, you will not be punished then. Um, and okay, you have higher public debt because of those two high deficits in in twenty twenty and twenty twenty one. But the the European Union does not really punish uh, countries because they have a or for their level of of de- public debt to GDP. I think in the fiscal compact, there's a tiny, tiny rule there that if you are below 60% of public debt to GDP, you can have a little bit of a higher deficit um, Mm. in normal times. I think it's like 1% of deficit is allowed instead of allowing a deficit of 0.5%. But for countries like like Italy, Italy had 130% of debt to GDP before the crisis, so before 2020. So going under 60% is not an option for this decade and probably not for next decade. So, So... in reality, these kind of things don't matter. Um, what does matter, of course, is now that in the next generation EU uh, program, you have, ag- again, conditionality attached. And apparently the ECB says we will not apply the PEP program to those countries that are not willing to play this kind of game with the loans from, from the next generation EU program. So behind the scenes, there's a lot of, uh, lot of maneuvering, a lot of political pressure applied. Um, yeah, this is all about the, the future of the Eurozone. So will we continue this neoliberal setup or will we keep the PEP program, basically meaning that government solvency is no longer an issue in the in the Eurozone? If we keep the, the pandemic emergency purchase program and make it into a permanent emergency uh, purchase program, well, then, of course, we need to talk about um, what, what kind of reforms we need on the fiscal side. Um, mm. Because otherwise, countries could just spend whatever the amount of, of money they would like to spend, um, and it's not clear from the political side whether whether this will work. Um, if it's a bit inflationary, that would be good uh, because inflation mm. rates are, are generally too low. Uh, but we we need to th- rethink the the fiscal paradigm in the eurozone for sure and and find mm. new new rules, probably targeting full employment more than anything else. Yeah, in your new edition, you. Um... You have this blueprint of, and you mentioned it earlier, of of uh, creation of a proper euro treasury that could issue euro bonds, which the ECB then would buy without limit and make them permanently risk free, so the EU authorities could then issue unlimited money. Um, so essentially, the European institutions would become the equivalent of the US sovereign. Could could you expand on 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 those thoughts in in the book? Yes. So. So what you normally have in a, in a country like the United States is you have responsibility um, of the federal government for the employment situation. Okay, if, if there's mass unemployment, it's clear the federal government has to increase government spending. Um, it's mostly clear to, to everybody. Um, some of the conservative on the conservative side obviously don't, don't like it. Um, but at least in private, probably they all agree that, that, of course, if you increase expenditure, you will create more income. So, so firms can sell more stuff, they can hire more workers and, and these kind of things. So in, in terms of, of politics, it's a very nice situation. There's a situation which can fix a problem. It's clearly responsible and you have, you have elections every four years um, to, to fix any problem that, that arises and on this level. 
Um, and in the Eurozone, you have you have basically now national governments and their fiscal spending power is limited because of the budget deficit rules. So ma- maximum of 3% is allowed. Um, so they, they cannot be held responsible for the employment situation because, because there's a limit. So for, for the Eurozone as a whole, this, the responsibility for the employment lies with the European Commission, which normally is, is bound by deficit rules as well in, in the sense that they have a limited budget. So the, the budget of the European Commission is roughly 1% of GDP. So even if they increase it by, I don't know, 20% or 50%, it, it will be a tiny blip in, in, in terms of macroeconomics. Um, so it will not be a, a big push. So what we need in the Eurozone, um, if we want to continue with, with more integration, more European integration, we would have basically to, to put this, this responsibility for unemployment, we would have to put it with the European Commission and then give it a Euro Treasury and basically say, look, Here's, here's your source of funds. So if you want to increase spending, you can you are not relying now on taxes from member states anymore. Um, but instead, you can basically print your own money, okay, or create your own money. Uh, printing really is not a good word. <laughs> uh, so if you if you create your own money, uh, it's very easy to do. You just create a, a euro bond, and then you can uh, you can sell it. Uh, and because the ECB says we'll buy all of those euro bonds eventually. Uh, that means investors know that there's no risk involved with the euro bond. Okay, this is a zero default risk uh, financial asset. And mm. the euro treasury can create as much as the European Commission wants. Um, the problem with this, in terms of politics, is that we don't have full democracy in, in the eurozone. Uh, actually, we have no democracy at all because there's no euro st- eurozone parliament. Okay, so there's a euro, European Union parliament, um, mm. European parliament, um, but of course, there are non-euro countries in uh, in, in that parliament, um, so it's it's quite a mess actually. Um, so if you if you would like to introduce a euro treasury, you would have to make sure that democratic institutions are watching over uh, the way that these funds are spent, um, because mm. the European Commission is not a it's not a European government. That's why it's called a European Commission. It's it's elected by the European heads of state uh, and not by by the people of Europe. Uh, also, in terms of democracy, we have problems in the European Parliament because normally you would say one voter um, and then, uh, well, one vote. Um, but in terms of seats, the small countries are overrepresented. So I think that, for example, Luxembourg has three seats and Germany has, for example, 99. But Germany does not have 33 times the amount of people than, than Lu- that Luxembourg has, but mm. much, many more. Um, so, so there are some problems with with the democratic institutions, but they they in theory they can be fixed, um, but but it complicates things. Yes, it would it would certainly take time. Um, just coming coming back to the if if I have one political economy problem, I guess with with MNT as it's described, it's it's this time inconsistency in, in policies. So. As I said, you, you, the idea seems to be that you reverse the roles of central banks and, and finance ministries, uh, and and so if the only, as you say, the only constraint really on the amount of money, uh, the only restraint on policy is is inflation, and we've seen again and again how politicians are reluctant to uh, realise short term political costs, in this case, in the form of tax increases or slowing down. Uh, um, an increase in the money supply for a generalised long-term gain that 
potentially would benefit their political opponents. How would you, how would how would MMT proponents come up with a structure that could ensure that governments will be as reactive to an increase in inflation as a central bank might? Well, um, first of all, I would say that um, you are right when you say that, in a sense, the, the roles of central bank and, and treasuries have, have been reversed. Um, I mean, we have a zero interest rate, and nobody believes now that a change in the interest rate will have any big effect on, on private investment. So a lack of demand is clearly the problem that's, that's holding back the economy. Um, so MMTs have often argued for zero interest rates, uh, and now we have them. So in this world where the interest rate is basically at zero, the, the thing that will be influencing the economy in terms of policy is, is fiscal policy. It's the only game left in town, at least in the short term. Okay, so you could use trade uh, policy as well. I mean, Germany has big net exports, um, which are helping the economy and sustaining it. Without these net exports, it would, um, you, you would have to have uh, fiscal policy as the, the tool to use to to regulate the economy, basically, to regulate the macroeconomic side. Um, so, so again, in this world where interest rates movements are, are useless and also not, not wanted, because we, want, we don't want to go to, to minus something, it's, it will be a strange world, um, mm-hmm. fiscal policy has to, has to basically work, um, and it has to, has to carry the economy. And I, I agree that um, some politicians probably would, would, would then um, increase government spending and be happy with that because the voters probably like to have more jobs and higher wages. And mm. the question how you stop that is, of course, it's, it's a very interesting one. But I would basically argue that um, voters do not like higher rates of inflation. So old people, for example, that have a pension, a nominal pension, that is paid to them, they don't like surprises of in, in the rate of inflation. So at least in Germany, we have we have many old people. And in, in other European countries, that's that's the same. Okay, so there's more and more old people. And they live on these uh, pensions, which are nominally fixed. Um, so if the inflation rate contains some kind of surprise, the people who are working, they can basically react to this inflation surprise by, by agreeing to a higher wage if they can get it. Um, but the pensioners find it more difficult, probably. Um, but still, I would rely on those pensioners <laughs> to, hmm. to rein in inflation. I don't think that in- inflation is the problem that we are facing. So the, the pendulum has swung back from the 70s. So in the, in the 70s, maybe inflation was a problem. Uh, it surely was. Um, but hmm. for many people, it was not a problem. So I, I remember that my parents benefited from, from the high rates of inflation in the 70s because they bought a house in the 60s financed by a loan and the interest rate was i don't know maybe five percent or something so when when wage increases then went from two or three or four percent and then in the 70s to maybe six or seven percent we didn't really have high rates of inflation in germany in the 70s as they had in the us um but, but still that made it easier for my parents to pay off their their house loans their real estate loan um so i would argue that that we we cannot find um, or we should not try to find the policy solution that solves all of the problems all of the time. Um, right now, we have a problem with deflation, a problem with mass unemployment. So we, we need to find a solution for that. And, and yes, it will surely at some point lead to a situation where we have then the opposite. We have maybe uh, full employment, which creates maybe too much pressure for, for firms to adjust. I don't know. Uh, maybe we have inflation problems, uh, but 
I think that it will probably take two or three decades until we get there um, because the, the economies normally, uh, they don't change their macroeconomic system uh, very, very quickly. And also, um, even if you would try to increase inflation by as much as you can politically, I, I don't think that in, in this situation in 2020, 2021, you, you could even do it. It's just there's so much entrenched power uh, that will go against you that I think it would be it would be a good idea, even if you ha would have a maniac arguing that we need to go <laughs> all in and basically increase government spending and have full employment. Even even such a, a politician, I think, would, would not get uh, the economy to inflate to a level of, I don't know, maybe, let's say, 5% of an inflation rate. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the economy does not work that way. Okay, so firms are set by uh, sorry, prices are set by firms mostly, and I would say that half of those prices roughly are set either by by state bodies, or they are set by by other bodies that that are very uh, that are not dependent on markets. Um, so so in that sense, making the inflation rate go up is I think it's more difficult than than we normally imagine. Yeah, it, it's clearly not a problem in in the developed world uh, at the moment, and it's hard to foresee it being one. But but it is. Uh, there are problems with inflation in certain countries where some people would argue that the origin of that is is the monetary financing of debt. Um, so I, I'm I'm really thinking about how if you ran into that kind of situation, how it could possibly be addressed. And I take your point on on say, German pensioners um, forming a lobby group. But that it's difficult to get things done quickly by a lobby group as opposed to by, you know, a small committee that's that's looking at the data. So I'm just trying to see uh, if there is some kind of um, design that would allow fiscal policy to, to react as quickly as MMT seems to think that it could. Yeah, well... I would first of all, I would say that the the central banks probably could could be still in the game of fighting inflation. Okay, so if you think that that you have a private uh, sector investment bubble, then of course the central bank could increase the inflation as uh, the interest rate and try to stop this this um, bubble and thus freeing resources and and all these kind of things. Basically, trying to 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 get that bubble uh, to to remove this bubble from the economy. Um, if if that is happening, um, otherwise you just basically you, you the um, how how do I put that? So so again the the rate of inflation it it was always our problem that we discussed, um, but I think for a couple of decades we we didn't have any inflation. So I think we we don't understand it quite. Um, that's what the Federal Reserve Bank said I think last year. I think we we understand it better if we look at it from an MMT perspective. So. Um, I think that there's really this, this connection between interest rates and inflation rates. So if you have high inflation rates, it's probably because you have high interest rates. If you think about countries like Argentina and Brazil, they have higher rates of inflation, but they also have higher rates of interest. Um, that, of course, means that the bondholders, they get, they get payments, they get income because they get paid these interest rates and they, they can spend that income. Or they can they can exchange it into U.S. dollars, which depreciates the currency. So um, I would say that it's the, the world is kind of complicated. So money creation is easy to understand because it's 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 done by us. So so central banks are created by humans, so we might as well understand how they work. Um, but of course, we don't understand what people do with the money that that they are holding. 
Um, mm. And I think there, there is a case to be made that many developing countries have a problem because they have debt denominated in foreign currency. That is something which is really bad. Um, if it's government debt, then probably the government can fix it by, by creating more of their own domestic currency and then exchanging that into foreign currency. But they, they, they ruin their exchange rate when they do it. Probably this is what happens in Turkey, for example. Mm. Um, so I would argue from an MMT perspective that you, you should basically think about economic policy in terms of interest rates being a driver of the inflation rate, but not higher inflation rates being uh, put down by, by higher interest rates, but you have to turn it around. So if you want to see lower rates of inflation, you have to lower interest rates and not increase them, um, at least over the medium term. Um, of course, if you, if, you, if you make interest rates come down, you might cause some kind of boom, but there's enough regulation that you could come up with to, to make sure that this doesn't really happen. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's, we have to rethink macroeconomic policy, um, but government has a lot of tools at their disposal. If, if, you, if you are afraid that if you, if you let interest rates come down, that there will be a real estate bubble, well, you can, you can enact legislation and basically say if you want to buy a house, you have to pay at least 50% of it up front. And that takes, that takes the, the speculative uh, motive out of, out of these investments into houses then. Um, so that's, mm. that will be my answer. Yeah, I could see a lobby uh, appearing on the other side of that, <laughs> on the other side of that account. Yeah. Um, f- finally, uh, since this is a podcast about books, I ask every guest to make at least one recommendation. What is your recommended book? Well, my recommended book is Reclaiming the State, a Progressive Vision of Sovereignty for a Post-Neoliberal World by William Bill Mitchell and Thomas Fassi. Uh, came out in 2017. And it's a nice book about how you can use institutions of the state um, to create a progressive vision for for society in the 21st century, basically. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, today, Dirk Ainz and I have been discussing his book, Modern Monetary Theory and European Macroeconomics, published by Routledge, and updated as Money and Credit, a European Perspective, published by Metropolis. Dirk, thanks again for joining the podcast. Thank you, Tim.